This is the first show we've been able to record since the passing of the great Nick Utekin. Nick joined us to discuss The Glorious Scott, um, and John and I thought that was one of the best shows we've ever done. Not because of anything we've done in particular, because but because Nick was so kind, interesting, thoughtful, and insightful about the story and everything about the world of Sherlock Holmes. We really miss Nick. We loved having him on the show, and his emails were just as interesting as, they, as he was on the show. We'd like to send our condolences to his family and friends. Bless you, Nick. Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. Recap of the Adventure of the Norwood Builder by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes and Watson are in their rooms at 221B Baker Street. When a guest flies into the room, he introduces himself as the unhappy John Hector McFarlane and sort of makes out that they know who he is because they clearly must have read his story. Um, unusually for Holmes, he hasn't read the papers and doesn't know who he is at all. Um, so he has to sit down and explain his story. He says that he is from Blackheath, he, um, and he was visited one day by uh, an old man called Jonas Oldacre. Um, and, well, basically McFarlane has been accused of murdering Jonas Oldacre. So he tells the story about, uh, about how they met. He said he was in his office one day, and Oldacre came in and asked him to draw up a will. Um, he said he knew exactly who he want, what he wanted to do, but he needed like a, a, a legal language basis to uh, to get it all in black and white, all right and proper. And then McFarlane is astounded that Oldacre's sole beneficiary is himself. And Oldacre is a, quite a rich man. He's a builder. He's made a lot of money over the years, and now he's happy to give all the money uh, after he dies to uh, to John Hector McFarlane himself. Um, McFarlane doesn't really go into He's surprised, but he just sort of leaves it there. And it, it's explained away by uh, Old Acre saying, I knew your parents. I've watched you come up. You, you know, you're a good, good, fine fellow. And uh, that's what I want. I know my money will be, be, will be good with you. And he sort of thinks, oh, okay. Um, so they discuss the will, but um, Old Acre basically says, why don't you come to my house in Norwood? So Norwood to Blackheath is not too far away. Um, it's a little bit awkward to get to even today, to be honest, from one to the other. But um, it's not as if it's, it's thousands of miles away. Um, so why don't you come along and uh, we'll have a look at the documents and you can set them all out and, um, and fine, let's do that. So they do that. McFarlane leaves quite late. They do the, their business. Uh, he leaves quite late and he stays at a local inn. Um, we'll be coming on to that as well. Um, and then on his way home, he picks up a newspaper, reads it and finds out that Old Acre is dead and he's the prime suspect in the whole thing. And he says the police are looking for him. So of course his... Um, attitude as well. I'm not. I don't want to get arrested. I'm completely innocent. Let's go to two two one B Baker Street, where of course Lestrade is going to be waiting for him at some point because he's not that stupid. There is a great deal of evidence against McFarland. His stick is in the house for a start. Um, Old Acre has been killed by a fire, and that fire looks like it's been started deliberately because there's a big pile of um, rags and the ends and ashes and what have you, and the smell of burnt flesh. And it doesn't look like an accident. So it looks like. 
Old Dick has been hit on the head with a stick and burnt. Um, and there can only really be one suspect because there's there's a housemaid who says, you know, yes, he was the last person to be seen at the house. Um, so it does look like he actually did the crime. And, of course, what really happens here when Holmes is faced with someone who's definitely, definitely guilty, he always goes the other way and says he's definitely innocent and then vice versa. I found that anyway. Um, Holmes begins his own investigation into this and uh, and, and does some clever work about examining the, the documents that... Um, Oldacre had when he visited McFarlane in the first place and finds that in, in some places it's, it's, it's written quite nicely and then it's quite, uh, quite shaky and said so it looks like it's just been thrown together. Um, and he thinks, well, this, so there's something very, very iffy about this. But actually, Holmes goes to Blackheath rather than going to, to Norwood because he wants to meet McFarlane's mother and they found out that McFarlane's mother was once engaged to Oldacre and basically Oldacre was very, very cruel to the family and um, uh, not not a nice man. And th- this, of course, makes Holmes think straight away, well, the family clearly don't get on, so things happen between them. I think whole, Old Acres um, uh, was thrown over for another. They were engaged and she didn't marry him or something. He's always been very bitter about that. Um, so then they go through the... Uh, he eventually does turn up at, um, at Nord and does a strict measurement of the house uh and um but he looks at the evidence that the strades got together and of course he's it's very it's incredibly damning you know he said i'm sure he's innocent but everything is going against this one thing he does find now is that old acres finances are are a bit weird he's got some checks made to a mr cornelius um uh he also discovers uh, old acres trouser buttons in the fire um and None of that speaks to uh, any innocence of McFarlane at all, but Holmes is really, really quite set on this Mr. Cornelius business, and we've had a bit of this before in Silver Blaze, um, where suddenly someone, some checks have been made out just before someone's died. Um, Holmes says that all my instincts are on one direction, well, in one direction, and all the facts are in the other. Um, but uh, he's a bit suspicious about the housekeeper, so he goes home and he's furious, but he thinks, yeah, I know he's innocent, but he can't quite work out why. Um, later on, uh, Lestrade, who's basically been gloating throughout the whole thing, says to him, oh, he's definitely guilty. And he said, how do you know that? He said, well, I found a, I found a, a, a thumbprint at the house. So they go to the house and uh, they examine the thumbprint. It's on a wall. It's absolutely definitely McFarlane's thumbprint and it points to his absolute guilt. Um, Holmes is not put uh, off by that. In fact, he's ecstatic because... Um, he knows that that thumbprint wasn't there the day before. That's been put there. That uh, thumbprint has probably been taken from a wax impression, which, of course, they use wax to see, seal the, the deeds and what have you. And um, someone's put that there, um, which means someone is having a little game. So, so he has a little game of his own. He walks around the house and he look, measures things and he looks around and think, knows there's something quite wrong. And then, then Holmes, I love this moment, suddenly becomes very, very happy. So he goes to the top floor, uh, he takes a few constables with him, and he takes, a little, he takes some straw and asks Watson to set fire to it. Um, it's not a great deal of straw, there's no damage whatsoever, but they want, well, more than anything else, he wants everyone to shout fire. And he shouts fire, and the smoke begins to thick, thicken. Oh, again, there's, there's no structural issue whatsoever, but um, suddenly, out of a little door, comes out Mr. Jonas Oldacre, who thinks he's going to burn to death. It transpires that there is a little... Because he's a builder, he's built a little room for himself that is hidden away on the top floor that only he and his housekeeper um, know about. Um, which is a very, very ingenious way of hiding. So Oldacre's plan was basically revenge upon the family, um, have um, Hector McFarlane, John Hector McFarlane, uh, in prison for murder, probably hung, I'm guessing, as well. Lots of revenge that way. And also, the Mr. Cornelius is himself because his money and uh, his finances are all awry. He's been playing the stock market and playing it really, really badly. And if he disappears, he's got no more creditors and he gets to keep all that lovely cash. Um, Holmes is incredibly pleased with this, but he's actually quite nice in the end to Lestrade <laughs> and, uh, and um, gives him some credit at the end. Um, Holmes is only a little bit disappointed that um, uh, Oldacre isn't as cunning as the late lamented Professor Moriarty. But that is the adventure of the Norwood Builder.
Our guest this week to discuss the adventure of the Norwood Builder is Dan Smith. Dan is a non-fiction author who has written over 30 books on subjects as diverse as Albert Einstein, The History of Money and The Strange Affair of a Pair of the Realm and the Cray Twins. We will be revisiting that. He's also written five books related to Sherlock Holmes, The Sherlock Holmes Companion, An Elementary Guide, How to Think Like Sherlock, Sherlock Unlocked, and The Ard Lamont Mystery. Dan was born and raised in Wallington in Surrey, which of course features in The Adventure of the Cardboard Box. Hello and welcome to the latest episode. It's a bit of a delayed episode uh, of um, Sherlock from Adler to Ambly for various reasons, for which I apologise. It's all to do with me. Um, what's happened, John, is I moved house. We bought a house, we moved house, and then, and I'm, I'm just getting my show, so I'm going to say it. Um, I foolishly trusted my Wi-Fi issues to Virgin Media, who, which is like basically putting the Keystone cops in charge of all communication, uh, departments not talking to other departments, that sort of thing. So I didn't have Wi-Fi for a bit. And then for a man who's prided himself on not getting coronavirus, I got it viciously. Um, so that put me out for a bit. And I also climbed the three peaks since uh, our last podcast. So poor Dan, who's our guest today, has had to wait. Is that just had the email after email saying, actually, can we do a week Thursday? Actually, I can't do that today. Actually, I'm ill. Actually, I don't have a house at the moment. So we'd like to apologise for that. So we haven't actually done a show, John, since the live event which I think was July. June or July, yeah. It was, it was back in the summer months ago. Which is great. So I've got a very honest question to ask you because we haven't discussed this since the actual show. This is, this is the first time I've spoken to you in, in the actually speaking realm rather than emails. Um, how was my fanboyism? Uh, you were a lot better than I thought. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, th- I think you managed to go over it quite quickly. Um, and uh, I did. yeah. Bert didn't seem too embarrassed, so it was uh, no, it was, it no, was that, that that was my aim. Before we started, I apologised to Bert for that for the whole sort of fanboy thing, and uh, he looked suitably amused by that as well. Um, it was an incredible show, mostly because I think it's the first time I've ever written a light agenda and had it thrown away probably in about forty-five seconds, and I just let them go. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which was tremendous. If you missed the live show where we discussed. Um, the overlapping stories of the final problem and the empty house. We, uh, it's on YouTube, um, and I think I think we devoted a full five minutes to the empty house because um, they both agreed that they're both quite preposterous stories. But of course, we all love them. But um, Paul Danny is sitting patiently, waiting to discuss um, the Norwood Builder. I will be grilling Dan about this. Um, and one thing I will say, Dan, straight away is I've got one of your books and didn't realise that was you. Oh really? Which book's that? Uh, it's the uh, How to Think Like Sherlock book. Oh, okay, yeah. And it was bought for me by a previous guest, Hannah, who's my friend's kid. Uh, Hannah came on as a, she's a, well, she was a second year student at Durham, um, and we brought her on because she had no knowledge of Sherlock other than the TV series, and we just wanted her to read the story and see what she thought. And then she sent that to me for my birthday a while ago. So thank you. You're sort of indirectly responsible for a birthday present I got a while ago. So, but. Um, Obviously, we're here to talk about Sherlock, but because John and I are sort of East End curious without being from the East End, we've got to talk about the craze and the pier. Um, we're both friends of uh, the, a reprologist called John Bennett, who's written a book called Cryology, um, which I think is absolutely fantastic. I'm not just saying that because I, I, I'm sure I am John knows. And I only vaguely know John Bennett. We nodded each other in the street occasionally uh, when we're in Whitechapel. Um, but it's the, the, the whole law is it look is it boothbury or boothby 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 um the whole thing about that i always find is um it's hardly sp- spoken about it, it, it you know in in things like you know the the the, the films and, and what have you it's it's hardly touched upon where it's probably i mean murder murders the small matter of murders aside it's it's incredibly significant to the times about the fact that you know they had the power to get not just you know to to not do the headlines you know just to you know to, to take it off the front page but to basically get an apology for it too yeah. i think it, i think it's an where, where, where did you sort of start your researches on that so, oh it's a really funny genesis of this book because i i wrote 
a um, really a, a kind of quite light history of the Dig for Victory campaign um, during the Second World War. I wrote it know, about 2010, something like that. And that was really my first introduction to Lord Boothby because he'd been at the Ministry of Food during the war. Okay. It was whilst I was researching that book that, um, you know, so I was finding out about he, he was a champion of the national loaf and all this kind of stuff. But it was whilst I was researching this that I sort of came across these whispers that he'd, he'd also had you know, a 40 year affair with Harold Macmillan's wife. That's right, yeah. And he'd had a, this very curious relationship with Ronnie Cray. And, and at the time, I, until about six weeks ago, I, I was living um, on the Isle of Dogs. So I was in the East End time when I was doing this and thought you know there, there's a story here isn't there so I always kept like an ear to the ground just to see what you know what other information came out because it was all very vague then in 2015 I saw that um MI5 had uh dumped a couple of large files about Boothby into the National Archives they got a bit of press attention at the time and it was really it was kind of quite light press attention which went for the obvious line that, you know Boothby did know and kind of stuff and I I decided to go through the, the files with a fine tooth comb and sort of gradually built up this picture of you know in the book I describe it as the great forgotten political scandal of the 20th century it happened the year after Profumo yeah um, and, and I think that was part of the reason it was covered up because the government knew it was not going to survive another another scandal on that scale but if it, if it had gone public then it would have been every bit as Later was the Fumo scandal, and as I went through these files, it also became very obvious that it was a, a bipartisan cover-up as well. It wasn't so Boothy was a conservative, but um, he had this relationship with Ronnie Cray, which basically at the time it was thought they might have actually been in a sexual relationship together. They weren't, but if essentially Ronnie Cray was Boothby, who was in his sixties then, a big media personality, young young men um you know some sort of young as 17 some of whom were probably there of their own accord and some who definitely weren't who you know who were there because ronnie cray told them they needed to be there um and also involved was tom dryberg who uh, just a few years before the scandal had been chairman of the labor party yeah scandal and and yeah you know you have these moments sometimes as an author where you're looking through files and and you're thinking I think I'm joining some dots here that no one else is. Yeah. And this isn't an amazing story. It, it is. It is absolutely incredible. Um, how long did it go? Did were they still friendly um, after the event, as it were? Because because when when you know read the the histories and what have you and see you know the depictions and what have you, it sort of just says that that happens and then they just start going about you know killing people in the blind beggar and what have you. Yeah. Um, they were not after that. Yeah, the scandal was 64. I think afterwards, you know, Boothby was quite nervous of them pretty much from that time on. Um, but he remained in communication with them. They were sent to prison in 69. You know, he was he was in communication with them after the scandal up until that point. And Dryberg was positively campaigning on their behalf whilst they yeah. were in prison in the 70s. So and in, in 1965, um, when they were arrested um, and got on trial for the first time and they were acquitted, Asian, um, Boothby stood up in the House of Lords. Basically, they hadn't been granted bail and appealed on their behalf in the House of Lords. Completely unconstitutional. You know, you shouldn't have been taking on a, uh, the cause of individual prisoners in that context anyway. But yeah, absolutely. Completely humiliated himself in front of them. No doubt in my mind that he, he that wasn't something that he did through great personal conviction or choice. That was something he knew he had to do. Praise, you know, had it had it over him really. Yeah, it's it's, it's a, I always find the Christ story really interesting in a sort of how did they get away with that for so long thing. Have, have you have you read? Um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Fred's book. Fred. Not Fred, not Fred, what's his name? Oh my God, that's going to really annoy me. And then uh, Foreman. Freddy, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed, yeah. It's it's yeah. fascinating, isn't it? And it's just, it is that kind of, I think what I find really interesting about the craze is I, I don't think they were that interesting as criminals. You know, I don't think Sherlock Holmes would have been 
threes at all. You would have, you know, outwitted them in five minutes. Um, but they were able to, to kind of leverage the, the this contact in society and with celebrity. I don't know how they managed it really. You know, they I don't think they were particularly even before people you know, really got to grips with who, what they were like. Um, you know, they weren't particularly appealing. They weren't massively eloquent or charming. You know, it's so quite how they managed to to get this kind of hold over people. I think yeah. some of it was he, he talked his biographies, uh, autobiographies and memoirs are really interesting. He kind of put some stuff out there in plain sight. So he never really admitted to anything. No. There's lots of stuff out there in plain sight. And he talks about how he's attracted to the criminal classes basically and, and yeah. honestly i think boothby liked the idea of a, of a bit of east end rough really i think it, yeah. some of it is as, as basic as that and um when they uh when they had their casinos and and drinking dens in the west end as well that it just combined all the love and indeed lots of the celebrities that were hanging around at sort of glamorous and illicit at the same time yeah yeah i think that's the attraction yeah I think Boothby was an old fool this and before he really really got to grips with who he was dealing with here being too deep and, and um didn't have any way out. Yeah. Um I'm a bit conscious now that people are tuning in thinking are they talking about the Norwood builder here rather <laughs> a pair of the realm. So I could do this for another hour. I'm absolutely obsessed I'm I'm fascinated by um uh by the craze. I'll just say that though, um Freddie Foreman's book um, is interesting to me because he sort of says, yes, I did things, and then sort of says, but let's not talk about that. And then the very last bit, he says, all I really want is respect. Well, you, you, you did kill people. <laughs> you literally killed people. Um, and I've been tried for it, um, although he got off, of course. Um, so let's move on to Sherlock. Um, we always ask two questions at the start of this podcast, and here's the first one, because I know the answer to the second one. Hopefully I will. John, I'm I'm having no nothing negative about the Norwood Builder. I want that known straight away. Um, otherwise, I'll leave the show. Um, what brought well. you to Sherlock? No, no, none of it. Uh, yes, I know. We're going to talk about the, the, the black, the black, the white, white, why he decided to stay in a hotel when it's four miles away. Um, but um, what, Dan, what brought you to Sherlock? What brought me to Sherlock? Um, so I started reading the stories when I was eight, and that was combined with watching the Jeremy Brett series which was kind of coming into its peak at that time yeah. well so it was those two things that you know just loving the stories and then seeing this amazing faithful adaptation that's real meaning was it, was it... so I, don't, I was trying to remember the other day which which was the first story that i read and I, over the through the mists of time i'm Slightly, I can't remember definitely now. It's either the Speckled Band or Silver Blaze. I just, I just remember whichever one of those. Same thing happened. You know, I, I came up with my eight-year-old theories about what was going on, and was just, you know, utterly astounded by uh, what actually had gone on. In the... that was enough. I love, I love the idea of someone coming, to, <laughs> coming to Sherlock Holmes through um, the Red Circle or something. You know, one, one of the more uh, obscure stories. Um, yes, I really got involved with Wisteria Lodge, you know, something like that. But yeah, I think my first one was Silver Blade, and I just thought that's just brilliant. Yeah. And they're all going to be like this. Yeah. Um, no, they're not all going to be like this. And um, before John butts in here, did you like the Norwood Builder? I, yeah, I really like the Norwood Builder. Thank I, you. I think it's really interesting and even more, you know, as, as I get older and, you know, I've written about Sherlock Holmes and that kind of stuff, it, it's got more interesting to me. And I also have a personal attachment to it because the geography of it is familiar to me. So I grew up at the edge of South London um, in uh, is. Um But, you know, these places I knew growing up, you know, when I was getting the train into Victoria, when I was a teenager, you know, you go through and, you know, so it, it always had that resonance as well and for the case against the Norwood Builder which we were not countenance on this podcast Mr John Rees rabbits yeah okay <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, admittedly, there's a rabbit's issue. I, 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 lo- I love the story. If it wasn't for, oh, it must have been a ra- some rabbits that you killed and hid in the fire. I mean, first of all, the temperature a fire would have to get to destroy enough of a human body, um, you know, it's just impossible for a little bonfire. And then, you know, the remains must have been rabbits. Um, you know, if, if, if he'd gone down the line of maybe it was a dog, I could possibly think it might have fooled the police for five minutes um you know they, they could have said you know so you know there's a report of a monkey being abducted from you know the london zoo um or you know there's a, there's a missing tramp you know or something like that but rabbits that, that's yeah i i wish there had been a kidnapped monkey in it actually now you meant <laughs> I'm, so, I'm surprised he didn't go down the gypsy route. Is what he normally does. Every time he says the word gypsy, everyone just says, "Well, it's not that then, because it never is." The second you bring in gypsies into the story, or, or you know, uh, is, it, is it the Abbey Grange where he bring, where they, he makes up a criminal band of thieves or something? I think he makes them up, but uh, um, yeah, it's very obviously not them. Um, he does that all the time. Um, my my problem with the uh, with the Norwood Builder is. He goes to Old Acre's house, which is in Blackheath. Um, sorry, in, in Norwood, lower, lower Norwood, I should say as well. And he lives in Blackheath and he thinks, I think I'll stop at an inn and sleep there tonight. And it's not particularly, it's, it's helpful for the story. So he's not in Blackheath when the police come to arrest him the following day. But it's four or five miles away, something like that. And it's only one in the morning, and he's he's and he's got money. So that's the only thing I don't quite understand. But we've been here before. We're talking about Sir Arthur, and we're talking about London. Well, I I sort of do, despite loving the story. I have a couple of issues as well. Then, if we if we're gonna explore all of these, um, um, and we do it from a position of love. But the he talks about the um, taking the wax cast. The yep. seal being the easiest thing in the world, and I I really struggle to see like take a wax cast. Of Wouldn't it just crumble? Wax seal, yeah. And 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 I like the way you know I think that classic Conan Doyle that we don't get into the detail of it. It's just the easiest thing in the world, and if you can't see it, you're an idiot. Um, so I like to with that because that does make you feel like an idiot. Like how 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 is that easy? It, it also it, sorry, Dan. It, also, it would be mirrored, surely. It wouldn't be a matching thumbprint because it would be the mirror opposite of his thumb. You know, when you when you put when you reapply it. Yeah, very good point. And and the other thing is, I'm not convinced. So at the end, Old Acre gets um, charged with conspiracy. I'm not. I'm not sure what he's been charged with conspiracy. You know, I get what he's been trying to do, but in terms of sort of criminal charges, it seems to me. He he set a or got a, a fire bonfire set on his own land. The yep. police came and investigated it. He didn't call them in. They came and looked around his house, made a load of assumptions, and so actually he didn't really do do anything that I can see that he can be criminally charged with um, at that stage. So I also puzzle over that. What what are they actually actually going to say in court? And I suppose also the Mr Cornelius thing. Mm. He's quite. It's quite legal to set up a bank account mm. and transfer your own money into another money because it's still your money. Yeah, that that gets all fine. Um, see, you're both you're both prodding at one of my favourite stories. Just, you know, just, the reason why it's one of my favourite stories is in the BBC Radio Four adaptation, Old Acres played by Peter Salas and Wallace and Gromit and Last of the Summer Wine fame. With that beautiful, um, I imagine it's Yorkshire, Yorkshire voice, and he he does it so well because he makes Old Acres seem quite nice when he's clearly not. Um, well, that sort of brings me to my next question: How strong is this grudge Old Acres got against McFarlane's mum? A long-lasting one, isn't it? And uh, yeah, and and I wonder. Because, um, you know, John, John McFarlane talks about his parents, you know, he's aware of this chap because his parents 
had an acquaintance. So what, you know, clearly it seems to me that the parents weren't saying he was a terrible man that we never want to speak of when he was growing up. He had some recognition of him. So I wonder what, you know, what terms he was clearly very hurt when he was cast aside, but was there kind of some amicable relationship that carried on for a little while afterwards and he just harboring it for a long time, isn't he? Yeah, so presumably by his age, it would have happened at least 25 years ago mm. as well. I just think that's a, an impressive um, grudge. Bearing in mind, it, it seems like, I mean, without without going into tabloidism here or anything like that, it seems that um, uh, Old Acre's got a pretty good relationship with his housekeeper, who seems to be about the same age, I think. Yeah. Um, but you think, no, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to ruin everything now and ruin that family. But I, I just, I'm not quite sure whether the, a, a, a grudge would, I mean, I, I hold a grudge like nobody's business, but uh, I think after 25 years, I don't think, do you know what, I'm, I'm going to get back by having the son, I imagine, hanged um, for murder. Uh, it also, I don't, you, you're right, I don't really see what the case is. Um, and we nitpick a lot on this show. And another one, which when, when I reread it, is Holmes doesn't know who McFarlane is. And which is a nice plot device at the start of it. So, I mean, what he bursts in and says, I'm the unhappy, you know, John Hector McFarlane. And they just stare at him and say, and. Um, because Holmes prides himself on knowing every single thing that's happened in the press, particularly where the straits involved as well, who uh, he could basically just stalks pretty much. So, so that sort of threw me as well. But one of the great things about the story is it's Holmes against Lestrade again, Lestrade Lestrade. And that's I just, just I like the beautiful. Name, was it the Mr. Lestrade as well? Which seems like a really <laughs> back again at the end when he sort of bit more on again. But now that's I really like that kind of dismissive you know, summons Mr. Yeah, it, it reminds me of something we we, we had my friend Trev, Trev Downey on to discuss. Um uh is it the Noble Bachelor? Um where Holmes says <laughs> to Lestrade, Lestrade, you really are an excellent fellow. I think it's one of my favourite lines ever in a sort of you give me it's basically you give me so much joy because you're so stupid. Um, and I, I think this is isn't at some point the good inspector going to think he, he seems pretty sure, you know, <laughs> he's, he's not really uh, um, he's, he's not often wrong. So maybe I should sort of cut down on the gloating thing. And the reason I say that is because in the David Mitchell, um, as in the, not the writer, the comedian actor, um, his autobiography he talks about a, a character in Morse. I don't watch Morse. I don't know this too well. Um, where there's there's a ca- there's a character in that who basically I think it's Morse or maybe it's Poirot. I don't know. Who basically says I think you're wrong about this, and he says I think you're wrong in every single story. When I think it might be Poirot, and I've said that when Poirot basically gets something like 150 straight cases correct in front of him by just by having an unusual thought thinking maybe it's this, and the man never ever sees the trick. Ever and I just just made me think about about um, the start at, at some point. I just think really you, you you think he's innocent, all right, but he doesn't. He goes the other way and he goes the other way all the time. He does, and then it's his kind of you know the grudging respect at the end as well from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you're pretty good. Surprised again, you got it right. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I hope just doesn't say to him. You know this bit where you're being nice to me and you think, yes, I'm the master here, blah, blah, blah. Just, just try and remember that for next time I see you. <laughs> and I think he does the same thing with Hopkins a few times as well. Um, which, John, did you enjoy the uh, the Norwood build of Rabbits aside? Yeah, I, I really do enjoy it, um, Rabbits. I, 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 like, I like the drama um, of it. You know, I like that the fact that... It. Lestrade's there gloating all along. Holmes has got this little mischievous. Oh, yes, Lestrade, I'm sure you're right. Oh, we'll see about that. And then Holmes, you know, it, it seems like Holmes is beaten and Lestrade is, you know, his, at his cockiest. And then Holmes does this massive dramatic revelation at the end. It's pure theatre. Um, you know, Holmes, dramatic person anyway, you know, goes up to 11 for that revelation, doesn't he? Yeah. He sets fire to the house. Sets fire to the house, yeah. And um, which, which is beautifully done because you could just say, by the way, he's in that room there, he's a builder. Um, and he's sort of, he, there's a bit of a, I'm just wondering whether he went back to this when he did the Golden Pants Nay 
which has priest holes in it and a woman hiding in a secret room in a house um, as well. So maybe that sort of this fired the imagination for this. Because he's about to, in where we are in the canon, I should say. So we've just started. This is the second story of, which one's this? The Return? Um, of Sherlock Holmes. He's about to reach the start, the, the, the phase where he starts repeating plot lines. Um, which he's already done with the stockbroker's clerk uh, as a, a with the red-headed league, and he's got um, the three guys to come for the same sort of plot story as well. Um, what I think is interesting, Dan, is where it comes within the story. So we, we've had the two big stories, the final problem, then we've had the, the hiatus, then we had the empty house. And this is the first story where it's Sherlock version two. Hmm. Um, do you think at this point you can spot any changes with him, or is he still the Sherlock of the adventures and the memoirs? I mean, I think I think one of the reasons why I like this story is because it's because of all those other aspects of it. So you you've got a little bit of the the ghost of Moriarty. Yeah, he's in he's in his head still. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got you know Watson's properly you know they're back together as a, as a as a team, and so there's all that familiarity. But he's definitely, this is the bit where, you know, what I'll basically stop writing about my work. You can keep notes and, you know, maybe in the future you can go public with them. But, it, yeah, there's definitely, this is post-hiding out in Tibet, Sherlock Holmes, who you feel like wants a, a kind of different level of privacy. Um, and I think that comes through. Um, in fact, you still retain those those uh, aspects from the earlier stories. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there's a um, um, later on in the story. So obviously the big change is he, is he says to Watson, no more stories and I don't want the fame anymore, mm. um, which doesn't last too long actually because he's quite keen on the fame really um, for this sort of thing. And of course there's, there's the whole, when people talk, I mean, the, the BBC series makes out just constantly that he's massively in love with Irene Adler and he's obviously he's not in love with anyone because he's Sherlock Holmes. But he's really in love with Moriarty, and but from a point of view, whereas he can bring interest into his life, he can bring a genuine challenge. Yeah. Whereas poor Jonas Oldacre isn't, even though what he's done is very cunning, and he very nearly, as he says, you know, like every Scooby Doo, um, and then he very nearly got away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Um, the, I think there's there's an element of Sherlock now more enjoying the thrill of the chase, even though he's yeah. sort of trying not to because he's much more, you know, cerebral almost now and sort of no, I, I don't want the fame; it's the work I want. But I think if you're going to be low key Sherlock, what you don't do is set fire to a house <laughs> <laughs> to prove your point. The whole story is, I think, beautifully gothic as well. Which, you know, you don't get in all, all some of them, and you know, you, I'd say you definitely get that in. Um, of the Baskervilles and that so I think there's also those, those elements which um, perhaps Conan Doyle is exploring more in this story. yeah I, hey. sorry John oh, no, I, 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 I'd like to point out um, one thing I think Carl got slightly wrong a moment ago where, where you said that Holmes isn't in love with anyone he's clearly in love with Watson let's be honest well I, I... I mean that we'll do what's and watch next, but um, yeah. there's the, 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 there's a, a case I think of this of I, I think I think it has to be Watson so he can talk. Sometimes I do think it's just he's just an entity in the room and he just happens to think he's all right. Really, he's a bit he's a bit he's a doctor who's clever, but he's not as clever as me. And yeah, he seems okay. I don't. Sometimes I do wonder when he just thinks Watson's just oh you'll do. And yeah, but then, to think, so. yeah, but then at the start of this story, we find out he's arranged for someone to purchase Watson's practice. Yes, that um, is true. He's paid for it himself just to get Watson back. Uh, yeah. You know, this, the other thing, what you said about the, um, you know, I would have gotten away if it wasn't for those meddling kids moment. Yeah. It sets up a perfect sequel and it never pays off because he's like, maybe one day, Mr. Holmes, I'll get you for the, you know, whatever he says. You know, this is the type of guy who, if he had the opportunity, you know, he'd be back for the sequel. You know, he, yeah. you know, it'd be revenge of, uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed, you know, that the Conan Doyle never went down that route. Yeah, with, with some impressive moustache twiddling. Sorry, Dan. 
he'd have definitely kidnapped the monkey for that one. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. yes. It's the story that was never written, and I think it's the one big regret in the canon. I'm now writing a pastiche about this as we speak. Okay, well, poor Trevor Bond still banging on about the mongoose. Um, it's time to bring the gorillas back into the thing. It, it's, I mean, um, since since we've uh, got to the good doctor, um, this could be alongside with um, uh, the glorious Scott and the Musgrave ritual, the shortest ever. What's and watch? Does he do anything in this one? Honestly, not a lot, does he? But he's that. He's the foil. He's that. He's the foil that he needs. Yeah. He gets on the train. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. Um, what a hero. Just as a, an aside, when because you were talking about how Holmes arranges for his surgery to be, I, I'm never sure because the it's Doctor Werner, is that? Is he? Then they talk about him being a distant relation of Holmes. Is this? Yeah. Is this somehow related to the the Werner, the artist family that Holmes is? That's. Yeah, that's Sorry, what Leslie reckons, and that's what yeah. um, um, oh, what's his name? D. D Martin uh, Dakin, Dakin reckons. As yeah, well. yeah. Right. Well, that would make sense. Or it's a case of Sir Arthur recycling the same name again because he can't think of a fresh one. <laughs> Violet Anne and Mary. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which which I think is more likely. <laughs> to be at least it wasn't the government that's uh, purchase, purchasing the uh, the surgery, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and and, and what does Watson's neighbour change a lot as well? In, and I was looking at other stories here because it's a different one in the stockbroker's clerk, where the uh, where the front step is worn down three inches or something or other. Um, yeah, th- I think there's a bit of that. I mean, yeah, he, he does bring Watson back, and I, he does need Watson, but I th- I think his waking thought every day is Moriarty. And and I've said this before on the show, Dan. That my my only problem with the BBC series is not BBC series is not everything has to be about Moriarty. Even when Moriarty's not in it, he still gets a little scene, yeah. or a flashback, or like you know a little sort of uh, like it's just referenced constantly. <laughs> and sometimes I just think there are other crimes you could be doing. Um, what I like about the novel builder, I think it genuinely is an ingenious crime. I think it's very very clever, and. Um, uh, as, as you know, as, as the old adage says, it, it was perfect, but you got greedy. And the the thumbprint, which is the wrong way round, and only appeared in the middle of the night when a man is in jail, um, is lucky. And I'm quite interested in the concept of luck and Sherlock Holmes, to be honest, because he does get away with a lot of things. But also on top of that, I do. I'm I'm really impressed when I when I first read it with the fact that he knows he's right, but he can't prove it. And as a man who's, you know, based on, who lives his life based on, you know, the, the, the premise of science and what have you, as he does, he say, I don't know if it's this story, another one where he says, um, all my theories and all my, and all the facts are the other way. And I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. I think I used to yeah. the Boston Valley mystery, but um, as well, but um, I think there's the concept of luck is, is a big one here, I think, because, because he doesn't always win. No. And I think the whole that whole um, strand of that the the thumbprints really interesting. I th- if I'm right, I think the story was written or published 1903, but it's set. It must be set sort of 1890. Um, and and really, we were still not in the days of fingerprinting, then where we, I think Scotland Yard got their fingerprint bureau in 1901. Yeah. Argentina. I never quite understood why Argentina, particularly, but Argentina was sort of running with it by about then. But over here, it, it still wasn't. So this was all that's kind of downplayed in this. Story, just you know how remarkable it is, and indeed that the police are kind of onto it as well because they are almost certainly been onto it at that stage. But I find that quite interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. it's another story of the microscope as well, doesn't it? He's really, really quite keen about this new microscope thing that's going to go and one day there's going to be one in every single police station hopefully yeah. you know that sort of thing uh, which is quite nice which is we've got a similar thing in Ripperology obviously with the Mary Kelly murder and the um, uh, I don't even know it's a myth anymore John to be honest the whole bloodhound thing 
Um, well, there'd be a know. Virgo. Well, they exist, yeah. so it's not really a myth. But uh, yeah, they exist. Whatever. Did they just run away and get lost or whatever? I've 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 got I've got some uh, I've got some notes on the fingerprint thing. Um, so this story is generally believed to be set in 1894, um, oh, totally and um, in 1888 um, there were lectures at the Royal Institution um, on. Uh, uh, fingerprints. Um, the June 1888 issue of Nature um, had the use of fingerprints in China to identify criminals. All this is coming from the annotated, naturally. Um, so Holmes, being you know quite on the ball about those scientific things, um, he'd certainly have known about it. And I think it just shows Lestrade. You know, he's just, Lestrade isn't stupid. Um, he probably does keep up with you know the scientific things especially if it affects you know scotland yard and stuff like that you know just because he doesn't you know take logical leaps himself doesn't mean he wouldn't keep on top of what the latest thing is and scotland's yard's use of fingerprinting um it wasn't until the uh, i think it was 1901 they established a database of fingerprints but you know to make it more useful but that's not to say you know police wouldn't have been aware of it before then especially you know ones you know who are on the ball yeah so so it's it's yeah so it's 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 in usage at least um yeah yeah it's 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 um i was trying things like that interesting way you know it's 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 like the sort of you know when the films when um sherlock's driving around in a car what you know, <laughs> you can't be doing that. But I, I find it's, it's sort of, uh, in, in terms of the, the context of the time itself, which sadly diminishes when you read it later. Oh, he's really pleased about this fingerprint thing. Um, where, of course, it's, you know, second nature. No, so it didn't quite get into DNA or anything like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's it, t- Telegraph. You know, he 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 took he took advantage of technology. You know, he was a big user of the telegraphs uh, and stuff like that. So I think he he would have been at the cutting edge of things, certainly. So, uh, yeah, um, I think it's the example of blood typing, but uh, nothing's coming to mind. Well, the Sherlock Holmes technique, of course. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe he could have put my Wi-Fi together. Don't don't ever get to work in here. I'll just say that. Um, I get to say that on this show because I'm allowed to say in my day job. Um, so the Norwood Builder in general, then, I, I think it's interesting because for me, Sir Arthur's gone back to we've had the we've had the um the death of Sherlock Holmes, we brought him back, and I'm still at the top of my game here because here's the Norwood Builder and it's ingenious rabbits aside, um, which is what I call this show actually. If if we had episode titles, it would be called Rabbits Aside, the story of the Norwood Builder. Can, um, we, can we start having episode titles from now? No, 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 can we no, retrospectively no. go back and rename every <laughs> episode of an appropriate Mongoose. title just so we can do that? Mongoose, the story of the crooked man. More about mongooses. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think this, in, in context with the stories that's coming on, I think everyone loves the first collection, obviously. Um, I think there's a few uh, ones in the second, but this has got Milverton. It's got the solitary cyclist. It's got the Priory School. Um, I think, I think he's enjoyed his time off, Sir Arthur, and he's had a good sit down and a good think, because when he gets down to his last bow, it starts to get a little bit shaky, and then Casebook, it's as, as, as I can't remember a previous guest said, he's basically being paid by the by the sentence, and you can tell um, at this point. So I think this is a, a, a particularly strong scene we're heading into now in terms of the stories but what one thing i will say as well though is if this is sort of straight after the empty house or quite close to being in, in, within the same year say or something like that um london have got used to sherlock holmes very quickly haven't they him being alive and that yeah very there's true. no sort of, of being stopped in the streets oh yeah well you're alive again great it's just sort of okay. Let's go down to Lower Norwood and see about talk about this building bloke who's clearly um, destroys photographs of his ex-fiance and stuff like that. It's, it's gone straight away back into, and I know that they're all serialized and you know they weren't meant to be connected, but they are connected because he talks about Moriarty 
and um, you know other cases come into play. Um, is there anything really bad about the Norwood Builder, Dad? Anything Rabbit. really bad? Rabbits aside. <laughs> I honestly I don't think so. I think it's I think it's a really strong story. Um, you know, there's a bit of suspension of disbelief, but that's part of part of being a fan of Sherlock Holmes, isn't it? So I think um once you accept that, um and possibly the rabbits, um, I, I think it no, I think it's a really strong showing. I think as you were saying, you know, it's it's that kind of he's had a break from it he's he's not weary again you know he's going to get weary of Sherlock Holmes again but he's probably quite enjoying it again at the moment and and that shines through in this story I think I think it's reminiscent to me of a band's third album where the first one was a really the really big good one the second one is sort of cashing in and uh be here now for example and um high oasis Sherlock fans um, and they've had a bit of time off now. They've got sort of, you know, they've got they've had a big holiday. They've been away for a year, and everything was, comes back strong again. Yeah. Uh, and I think that can happen to writers as much as anyone else. And sort of, I've had a bit of time off now. What was I really good at? This sort of thing. And, That's and just my theory. The, if you're like someone wants to write that down as the Oasis Sherlock Holmes theory, uh, then feel free. One one thing I'm quite interested as well about in the story is he talks about the you know there's the the other case it references to the other cases and there's the President Murillo which is presumably what will yeah. become Theria Lodge and yeah. I'm sure somebody else more knowledgeable than me knows it but I, I do wonder if that's if how many references there are in the stories to other cases that then actually do become. The, the the famous one is the second stain, um, which mm. we we talked about on the naval treaty. There's twelve years between him saying uh, there's the incident with the second stain, and twelve years later, Sir Arthur wrote the story. Well, he published the story of the second stain. So um, uh, I, I I'm not sure I t- I've said this on a previous podcast, but I would literally because I, I write short. Well, I used to write short stories a lot. I would literally write down titles and leave them on post-it notes around my flat. Um, and it, it sounds, seems to me that the, um, the, the this is the Victorian version of that, or, or slightly post-Victorian, um, where some, just a good title is just good. And sometimes you just have to write around the title rather than he just clearly likes the word the second stain. And, and the Murillo one as well, maybe he just kept a sort of um, his own sort of little plans for stories that could never be made or you know or they're not good enough like obviously there's there's all the stories of you know the uh, um rigoletti and his abominable wife that sort of thing which he just threw a hint at but he really couldn't write the story about her he couldn't get enough going onto it or he just wanted to write the red-headed league for the third time uh, it, it's all, it, it has helped to inspire loads of pastiches though you know people have um written you know um Riccoletti. they've written the aluminium crutch yeah. um the any murder um you know you got that great um the bbc radio 4 did a series of them didn't they and uh, yeah but yeah but yeah who sorry carl who i'm trying there's going to be an episode where i'm not going to mention him and <laughs> you won't mention him once today so <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah but stand down i'll send in the show afterwards um, do we have anything more to report about the fantastic Norwood Builder? Because God, I love it. It's really, I think it might, it might well be a Peter Sellers thing from last of the summer one, which I think is inspired casting. I really do, just because he's just sad. Sounds good. And what, what, one thing I will say is, what's the housekeeper's role here? Because surely, if we're doubting that Old Acres even committed a crime, he's just a bad man. Is this? housekeeper couple for anything she lies which isn't illegal well she's not particularly nice either no she's not she's not and I, I i find that that whole relationship really interesting because if she you know to do what she's doing you know mrs hudson wouldn't be doing this would she so you kind of think well she must have you know some sort of feelings above and beyond for old acre and if she does then how does she feel about taking part in some vengeful mission because of his lost love from 25 years ago? Yeah. It must, it yeah. must be quite a painful experience all around there, I'd have thought. Yeah, I, I think there's an element of that. I mean, the, there are comparisons in... Um, sorry, I forgot to sound like home. There are comparisons in the annals, Watson. 
Um, so uh, in the um, Abbey Grange, is it the Abbey Grange, the one with the three? Yeah, it is. Um, the housekeeper to the woman, whose name, of course, I've forgotten, um, is overly loyal. And uh, also there's the woman in the yellow face as well, who um, who's basically looking after the daughter, who, who is incredibly loyal. Um, but I think maybe this one's a bit different because she she will do anything for old Acre, absolutely anything, including lying to, you know, Scotland Yard, who have a lot more authority than Holmes does, and lying to, to Holmes, who's quite bright and finds things out. So I think this is the first time we've seen something like that, just just blind loyalty to something that she wasn't involved in in the first place. She No, she didn't hate uh, McFarland's mum. Or did she? I don't know. Was she around in those days? I'm not entirely sure. Depends how long she's been the housekeeper for, isn't it? it could be, very, very could be, yeah. Because in the Abbey Grange, I think I think that um, housemaid had been with the family since they were her her boss is now a, was a kid. Um, I don't know. Write in and tell us if you write in. Yes, if he's going to, you're going to write to. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's part of that. So just to wrap things up. We've all agreed that the Norwood Builder is absolutely fantastic and there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever and we'd be idiots to even begin to criticise it. Rabbits. Rabbits. Always with the rabbits. So one question we ask at the end of every show, Dan, um, it's the big one and you're not allowed the Mazarin Stone. That's the new rule. You like the Norwood Builder because, of course, how could you not like the Norwood Builder? But... If there was a story that you disliked, which one would it be? Roberto, I'm going to go for the lion's mane. Interesting. I think you're the first for the lion's mane. I quite like the lion's mane. <clears throat> um, it's any particular reason? It's it's not really a, a properly rational reason. And when I first read it. You know, I didn't know what was going on to the end, but I, I find something deeply unsatisfying about a story that actually does have the solution in the title. I think that's what. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, it would it'd be like saying, calling the Redheaded League, the Redheaded League in brackets, which isn't really a league at all, but it's a way of trying to rob a. I, I, I long believe that Silver Blaze should be titled The Horse Did It. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, that's the same. So it isn't really a particularly rational reason, no, but it, it just it really grates with me. And um, after reading it for the first time and, you know, goodness me, I hadn't worked that out. Every time I read it afterwards, I just unsatisfying. Yeah. Interesting. Presumably you would have the, uh, the Three Gables and uh, the Mazarin Stone in there as well if, if I gave you the option. Do you know what? I don't hate the Mazarin Stone. <laughs> John, we, we need a new guest to discuss it's, the novel it's, it's not one of the. It's not one of the A-listers. No, it's not. And it is a play, and you know, it is done for something else. So we, um, I just can't stand it. I really can't stand it. <laughs> and uh, so we, we've got quite a few now, John. We've had, uh, I think Rob said the Vale Lodger. Because mm. yeah. if you break it down to its narrative, it is basically... Sherlock goes to see someone, send, and she sends him something in the post. Yes, that's that's pretty much the story. And Lion's Mane, at least Sherlock goes for a swim. There's a bit of exercise in there. It does it's not a terrible story, but um, yeah, I don't know. There we go. It's just my just my own strangeness that <laughs> turned me against it. Right, and also I'm just seeing if we have a guest for the Lion's Mane. I'll tell you what, Dan, it's free. <laughs> if you'd like to come back and discuss that, because we've, we've definitely got Rob on to do the Vale Lodger. That is the level of revenge we have on this show. So would you like to come back and talk about the Lion's Mane? But that, that could literally be four years away by the time we get there, because it's only three in the end. Yeah, if I'm still around, I'll come back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You've done five other books about the craze before that. Thank you going in. Brilliant. Well, Dan, thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. We really, really appreciate Thank that. You. Taking up time. I'm just sorry, just sorry to everyone that it just took so long. Thanks to Wi-Fi and house moves and my health. Um, so thank you. Uh, 
and we will be back with the next one. John is top of my head. Dancing men, is it? Uh, is it dancing men? It's going to be. It isn't dancing men. It's Paul Edwards, my friend, Paul Edwards. Um, he's going to be discussing the dancing men, which is also brilliant. And yes. we will entertain no thought whatsoever that there's anything bad about it because it's great. We're going to save all of that for the three students. I don't like the three students. Thank you very much for joining us. I would like to thank our host at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening.